A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir, go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Hey guys, thanks for joining me again in Bible study today. Last time we were together, we introduced Romans chapter 1, verse 26, verses 26 and 27. If you were not here or have not seen that video, I would really urge you, please watch that video first. It lays an important groundwork, I believe, for what we're going to talk about today. And we must not get confused about some of the things I tried to communicate last time. But of course, we don't have time to repeat it today. These verses are very clear. God's telling us here that lesbianism and homosexual behavior are contrary to nature and contrary to his word. But as we saw last time, today we're living in a time, as was the Apostle Paul in the first century, when those who wish to practice these things 
are claiming that it's just part of their morally neutral identity, simply who they are. Now, Christians who believe in God's word must say, we don't have any choice about this. We must say, no, we love you very much. And because we love you, we must tell you the truth about these things, because according to God, this is sin and it has a very bad outcome. So we want to help people understand the truth about that. We love people too much to simply approve of their behavior and pretend it's no big deal just because it's what they claim they are and want to do. At that point, it's very common to hear somebody say something like this. Well, if you don't agree with me, that means you must hate me. We talked about this last time. If you don't agree with me, you must be a bigot. That's all you could be, a homophobe and a bigot. But some of them have gone further. Some of them have put together arguments to try to persuade biblical Christians that the church has just had it wrong all this time and that at least some kinds of homosexual behavior are actually just fine with God. He's just fine with some homosexual behavior, according to their claims. So I want us to take some time today and in the next study after today, we're not going to do it all in one study, uh, to consider seven of those arguments that are often presented. I think Christians need to understand these things. And of course, when we respond to them, we must respond in love, but also with God's truth. And of course, I'm assuming here that we all agree that the Bible really is God's word. Now, I'm fully aware, as are you, uh, that there are many who try to make a case for normalizing homosexual behavior who have an entirely secularized, non-biblical worldview. So if I were talking with one of those people, I would probably look for an opportunity, if they're willing, maybe after listening to them for a while, if they're willing to present the evidence that God's given us that makes it very clear that we can certainly trust his word. He's given us lots of evidence and someone has to have an openness to that and a willingness to check out the evidence. I introduced the Cross Creek kids to some of that evidence in, in what we call Veritas Warriors of Christ class, but we can't do that here. That's for another time. But the church today is having to deal also with people who claim to believe the Bible. They say, yes, we know it's God's word, but they also want to claim that homosexual behavior is normal and good. First, let's read God's word again at this passage we're looking at here in Romans chapter one, just to keep in mind the context of what we're talking about here. And this is what the Holy Spirit led the apostle Paul to write down here in Romans chapter one. This is God's word. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we've looked at that. Now we need to be aware of some of the arguments that the sexual revolutionists are making against what I believe to be the clear teaching of God's word. So here's one of them. The Bible, they say, does not condemn loving homosexual behavior when the partners are in a lifelong committed relationship. There are those who say when the Bible seems to be condemning homosexual behavior, it really isn't condemning all kinds of homosexual behavior. It's not condemning homosexual behavior, they say, between two homosexual adults who are committed to each other in what they call a covenant of marriage. God doesn't call it marriage, but they do, and now our government does. They say that what the Bible's condemning is not what they are doing. They say the Bible merely condemns predatory homosexuality, like homosexual rape, or it may be condemning promiscuous homosexuality. That would be homosexuality with many partners. Or it may be condemning homosexual pederasty, which is homosexual activity with kids. And they will claim that in the Roman world, and they say, after all, that's the world Paul had in mind when he wrote his letters. Remember, we're talking about the Roman culture. They say these were the only kinds of homosexuality around. Predatory homosexuality promiscuous homosexuality, and homosexual pederasty. So they say that's what Paul was condemning. Now, if they're right, the church has been wrong for 2,000 years because the church has always taught that all homosexual behavior is sinful because the Bible makes that very clear, as we'll see. But just because the church has taught it for 2,000 years doesn't necessarily mean it's right. I mean, we don't, church tradition isn't our ultimate authority, is it? Just because something's been taught for a long time doesn't mean, well, it must be true because it's been taught for hundreds of years. Our source of authority is not tradition, it's God's word, it's scripture. So we have to keep going back to scripture. But if they're wrong, and I certainly do believe they're wrong, and if it really is true that all homosexual behavior really is sin, then that means that all homosexual behavior eventually leads to really bad outcomes and destruction. Bad outcomes for the people involved, of course, but bad outcomes for families, bad outcomes for future generations, bad outcomes for our culture, bad outcomes for our nation. Sin always brings with it a horrific cost. Now, I want us to look at a few passages of Scripture that, that speak to this issue. And first, what I think we need to do is back off just a little bit and try to get God's overall perspective on this whole issue. In Genesis chapter 1, we read these words, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Of course, that speaks to the gender revolution we're going through now. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created something very beautiful when he created us male and female and created us to be sexual beings 
and commanded us to have lots of babies. <laughs> now, of course, that's only in the context of a marriage covenant. God makes that very clear in many other scriptures. And in the New Testament, God makes it clear that marriage pictures our relationship with Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, and he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 here. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2, 24. And then Paul adds, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it refers to Christ and the church. So, knowing what God teaches us about sex and marriage, it makes all kinds of sense that Satan, working with our fallen human nature and lustful desires, and the fact that we're living in a fallen Genesis 3 world all around us, will do anything he can, anything Satan can, to distort God's beautiful creation of gender and sex. So Satan's working hard to destroy it. And unfortunately, in our day, many people have decided they got a better idea than God has. God's ideas are old-fashioned. God's ideas are past history. We're living in a new time, a new age. <laughs> now, keep in mind, as we look at some more passages from God's Word, which we're going to do in just a few seconds here, nothing in any of these passages is said to imply that only certain kinds of homosexual activity are forbidden. Each passage simply refers to homosexual behavior, period, in general. So when we limit the meaning to predatory homosexual behavior or to pederasty or to promiscuous homosexual behavior, when we try to say, well, that's what he's talking about, what we're doing is what Bible scholars call eisegesis. Have you heard that word before, eisegesis? Eisegesis is a way of interpreting the Bible that's very, very bad. You could call it bad Bible interpretation. When we do eisegesis, we're reading into the text what we want it to say. We're taking God's words, and instead of reading out of the text what God's saying, we've made up our mind in advance what we want it to say, so we kind of read that into the text. Very bad way to read the Bible. So we mustn't do that. There are two passages, one's in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and one's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul uses a very interesting Greek word for homosexual behavior. The word is arsenokoites, arsenokoites. First look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, and here's the word, men who practice homosexuality, arsenokoites, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And then he wrote a similar kind of passage to the Corinthians. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, here's the word, men who practice homosexuality. In Greek, it's arsenokoites. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, 
you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, it turns out to be a very interesting word, this word arsenokortes. According to Greek scholars, this word arsenokortes is a compound word that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, seems to have just invented. He put two words together to make this one word. You remember most Christians in Paul's day spoke Greek. That's the reason God caused the New Testament to be written in the Greek of the common man, Koine Greek, common Greek. Of course, all the New Testament books are written in Greek, and they use a Greek translation of the Old Testament to read the Old Testament because many of them could not read Hebrew very well. So they translated the Old Testament into a Greek Old Testament, and it's called the Septuagint. And what Paul did was to combine some Greek words that were used in the Septuagint to translate some Old Testament words that are found in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Here's Leviticus 20, 13. If a man lies with a male, and there are two Greek words found in the Septuagint right here. One of them is arseno, the other one is koites, arseno, koites. As with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, I hope I'm being clear here about the Greek and Hebrew. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the original Hebrew text, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew mainly, but it, it trans, the Septuagint is a Greek translation, and it translates that, that first phrase, if a man lies with a male with two Greek words, arseno, which means male, and koites, which means to lie with. So when Paul uses the word arseno koites, he's making it clear He's not thinking about Roman culture. That's not really the issue for him at this moment. He's thinking about the Old Testament. Now, he's speaking to the Roman culture, but he's thinking about the Old Testament. In particular, he's thinking about Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, that we just read. I think it's also important that the correct translation of Arsenal Cortes is not men who have homosexual temptations. It's men who engage in homosexual behavior. As the ESV has it, men who practice homosexuality. But we'll talk more about that another time. The point we need to understand right now is this. Nowhere in Scripture is there any suggestion that some homosexual behavior might be okay. Or that there might be an exception of some kind for certain kinds of homosexuality to the laws prohibiting homosexual behavior. You see what I'm saying? There's no exception mentioned in the Bible. So some advocates of so-called same-sex marriage have tried to argue that, well, in Paul's day, the only homosexual behavior that he witnessed was pederastic or predatory or promiscuous because they said the loving kind of homosexual behavior that we're practicing is actually good. And they said Paul certainly wouldn't condemn something that's good. <laughs> but that's circular reasoning, right? They're, that's begging the question. Uh, we're assuming or they're assuming that there are certain kinds of homosexual behavior that are good, <laughs> in spite of the fact that God doesn't say that at all. They're just making that assumption. There's no biblical evidence anywhere in the Bible that any forms of homosexual behavior might be good. Have you heard of Kevin DeYoung? Kevin DeYoung's written some great books. Kevin DeYoung is a brilliant young evangelical theologian, very conservative, Bible-believing guy. And he's written a very powerful book entitled, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And if you wanted to get into some more details, that might be a great book for you to check out. But DeYoung makes it clear that it's simply not true 
that all homosexual behavior in ancient Rome was either predatory or pederastic or promiscuous. It's also significant in the passage we're studying, Romans chapter 1, Paul also prohibits lesbianism. He did that first in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And the first thing he mentioned is their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the fact that he talks about lesbianism and doesn't leave it out of this condemnation makes it seem really unlikely that he just has in mind pederasty or predatory sex or promiscuous sex. You see what I'm saying? In addition to all that, if Paul had pederasty in mind, there was a Greek word he could have used. Pederastia. Obviously, pederastia is the word from which we get our English word pederasty, right from the Greek. And if he'd wanted to make exceptions... Certainly, Paul could have added words to the effect of, when I use this word arsenal cortes, I'm not including two adult men in a long-term loving relationship. He, he could have added that. The Holy Spirit could have caused him to write that down. But there's nothing in the Bible that even hints that Paul's readers should or could take it that way. It's just not, not there. So the only way that advocates of homosexual behavior can use the Bible to make their case is to assume, to assume that all homosexual behavior in Paul's day was either pederastic or predatory or promiscuous, and that the loving, lifelong, committed kind of homosexuality just didn't exist. But Kevin DeYoung deals with this at some length, and he points out there's another book entitled Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, a source book of basic documents, a book that was written by a man named Thomas K. Hubbard, who is not a Christian. But that that book makes it clear that these advocates, these modern advocates, are just wrong. It undermines their ideas. His point is in that book, there's no simple pattern for homosexual behavior in ancient Greece and Rome any more than there's a simple pattern today. He points out there were all kinds of behavior in ancient Greece and Rome, all the way from what some people today might call bad behavior <laughs> to what some people today might call loving behavior. God doesn't, but they might. And lifelong same-sex relationships were definitely part of that mix in ancient Roman Greece, just like it is today. So their argument's very weak. The bottom line is the Bible does not condemn some kinds of homosexual behavior and approve of other kinds. The Bible makes it clear that all homosexual behavior is sinful. Now, before we stop today, let's take a little time to look at one more argument that they use. We'll look at some more arguments in the next study. But here's another argument that some advocates of homosexual behavior will make today. They'll say many Bible commands are no longer heeded in our day. We should treat the ban on homosexual behavior the same way we treat those other commands. Why would we say we don't have to obey those commands? Why do we have to obey this command in particular? You see what they're saying? They're saying this prohibition against homosexual behavior is an old command meant for another day, another culture, not for today. And they'll say, there are many commands like that. You look at the Bible, you'll see many, many Bible commands that ancient people had to take seriously, but today we Christians ignore them. So logically, we ought to be able to ignore the prohibitions against homosexual behavior in the same way. Do you see this? you understand the argument? For example, there are commands not to interbreed cattle. There are commands not to sow two kinds of seed in the same field or wear a garment made out of two different fabrics. Look at Leviticus 19.19. 19. You shall keep my statutes, God says. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Now, say, see there, we ignore that one. Why don't we just ignore the commands about homosexuality the same way? Put it in the same category as this one. 
You get the point? If we can ignore some commands, why can't we ignore the one against homosexuality? Here's the problem. And guys, we Christians need to be tuned into this and be able to respond to this. Lovingly, of course. Every time, every time we talk about making an argument, we're not talking about a heated debate. Hopefully, we're talking about a gracious, if you really want to know what God's Word says, we'll try to help you see this, okay? But this, this second argument we're looking at shows a lack of understanding of the different kinds of laws that we find in the Old Testament. Of course it's true. Christians have always recognized that there are different kinds of laws in the Old Testament. Some Christians are fuzzy about that today, but there are different kinds of commands in the Old Testament. Many of them are no longer binding on believers today. But some Christians today are so unfamiliar with God's Word that when someone brings up this argument, they, uh, well, I, I don't know. So it's important for us to understand that there are different kinds of commands in the Old Testament and be able to classify them a little bit. For example, some commands, like, for example, you remember there are lots of commands in the Old Testament about animal sacrifices. God goes into a lot of detail explaining how the animals are to be sacrificed. And there are lots of details uh, regarding Levitical priesthood. We know those commands are not for us today. They were for a period of time that ended when Jesus came. They all pointed to Jesus. That's what those commands were for, pointing people to the coming Messiah. When Jesus came, he fulfilled all of that, and those commandments came to an end. We don't offer sacrificial lambs anymore. We, we, that, that would be forbidden now because they all pointed to Jesus. We don't have Levitical priesthood anymore because our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come. <laughs> the true Lamb of God, the true high priest, our Lord Jesus, has come. And he's the one to whom all those priests and sacrificial animals pointed, so those commands aren't to be obeyed now. There are lots of commands like that. There were other commands, like commands regarding circumcision and the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws, feast and festival laws, that were given to keep Israel separated and distinct from the other nations. God intended Israel to be the people through whom he would give the world his word and his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And God did not intend for the Jewish people to be assimilated into the rest of the world. He wanted to keep them separate. So God used these special commands to keep Israel separated. The word for the Bible word we'd commonly use for that is holy or sanctified, but they were supposed to be separated. So when they got scattered out among the nations, it would keep them from just being absorbed and disappearing into other people groups. God used these commands to keep them from losing their identity. So obviously those commands are for us today. We also find another kind of command in the Old Testament. There were commands, part of God's law in the Old Testament. They were part of what we might call civil commands. God gave them to Moses in order to structure this early Israelite society so that it could function smoothly and well. For example, there was a command that told debt collectors they must not enter the house of the debtor to collect that debt. Deuteronomy 24, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. There were laws having to do with regulating divorce. There were laws about inheritance. There were laws about landmarks, many, many others. There were civil laws. There was a civil law that people had to put a safety wall around the flat roofs of their homes to keep people from falling off. Remember in that day, a lot of people had a flat roof and they would go up there sometimes in the evening where it was cool. Listen to what God says. When you build a new house, 
You shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. That was a law. Wouldn't make sense in our day, does it? No, it's not for us. It was a civil law. So those kind of laws correspond to the laws we have today, for example, against speeding on the highways or our zoning laws or maybe housing regulation laws. They were binding on ancient Israel. They made sense in that day, but they're not binding on us today. And some of them just wouldn't make sense at all. But then, of course, there are those commands in the Old Testament that are part of God's great eternal moral law. These are the commands that usually come to our mind when we talk about God's law and God's command. We're thinking about God's eternal law. We're thinking about things that are listed, some of them, in the Ten Commandments. For example, he has laws against stealing. He has laws against murder, laws against greed and coveting, laws against committing adultery, laws against bearing false witness, laws against idolatry, many other moral laws. So the question becomes, now listen carefully here, we got to put this together. Is there a way that we can discern to which category the commands against homosexual behavior belong? Was it part of those laws that were just done away with, or is it part of God's great moral law? And the answer is, yes, there is a way to figure that out. We don't have to guess. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the passage we read earlier, we know this command against homosexual behavior falls into the same category as commands against sexual immorality and idolatry and adultery and theft and greed and drunkenness and swindling. Homosexual behavior is listed in the same list as these other sins. And I think everybody would agree that all these things are example of God's great eternal moral law, don't you? So the conclusion seems very clear. The prohibition against homosexual behavior is part of God's eternal moral law, not the sacrificial laws or the ceremonial laws, not the civil laws, not the laws designed to keep Israel separate and intact. Sometimes we call those the holiness code laws, but God's great eternal moral law. So the command against homosexual behavior is not in the same category as the command to avoid mixing fabrics and clothing, for example. Totally different categories of laws. All right, we've used enough time today. We're going to stop here. Lord willing, we'll pick it up here next time with the third argument. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that as people listen to this study, that they would become better and better equipped to lovingly, graciously, in a Christ-like way, help any who might be open to help, to receiving help, to receiving your truth, to see the truth from your word about homosexual behavior. We don't want to be ignorant, Lord. We don't want to be caught flat-footed. We don't want to be tongue-tied. We certainly don't want to be wimpy and wishy-washy. We certainly don't want to get sucked into the world's way of thinking. So help us to learn to think biblically and to stand firm in your truth and to communicate with great love and grace your truth to others as you give us opportunity. Thank you for teaching us the truth in your word. We give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.